This is an Enlightenment Day celebration talk by Joel, titled Spiritual Death, recorded August 10th, 2003, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. Today is Enlightenment Day, so we call it at the Center, and we pick today because it's close to the day of my enlightenment, which was August 13th, but really we are not celebrating my enlightenment. There's one very good reason for that. There's actually no such thing as my enlightenment. What enlightenment shows you is there is no my there to begin with. So there is really only enlightenment, only gnosis. So what we're really celebrating here is the potential for every human being to attain this gnosis, this enlightenment, to discover their true nature and to be free of suffering. So this is what we're doing here today. And usually, traditionally, I give some talk related to enlightenment or something very close to it rather than talks specifically about a practice or something like that. And afterwards, if you want to ask me more about my own experience, quote, unquote, I will entertain those sorts of questions. Uh, before anyone can attain enlightenment, however, something else has to happen. And Teresa of Avila, who is a great Christian mystic, has a beautiful metaphor for this. She describes it as a transformation like the transformation a silkworm undergoes in becoming a butterfly. But, she says, note very carefully, daughters, the silkworm has of necessity to die, and it is this which will cost you most. The silkworm, the little self, the ego, who you think you are, has to die. Now, that doesn't sound very appealing. And you might wonder, well, that's this Christian path. You know, these Christians, they're into the crucifixions and crosses and death and all that stuff. Maybe there's some other path I could take and I could avoid this. <laughs> So maybe you want to become a Muslim and join the Sufis. Well, if uh, that's the case, listen to the great Sufi Rumi, who writes, No one will find his way to the court of magnificence until he is annihilated. <laughs> annihilated. <laughs> that sounds even worse. <laughs> so maybe you think, well, you know, Maybe I should become a Jew. They're a very rational religion, this and that. But then you would have to listen to what the Hasidic master Menachem Nahum says. He who wants to draw the life of God into him must first put to death his natural self, which has been with him since birth. Oh my gosh, so... <laughs> Maybe then you would figure, since these are all the Abrahamic traditions, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, you could go to the East, so you could avoid all this. And the Buddhists, you know, they contemplate and meditate all day, and they get lost in the bliss of the samadhis and things like that. Well, here's the Buddhist Lakamatara Sutra, and this is what it says about the one who has attained enlightenment. There has been an inconceivable transformation death by which the false imagination of his particularized individual personality has been transcended 
by a realization of his oneness with the universalized mind of Buddhahood, from which realization there will be no recession. That's a mouthful, but you get the idea, you got to die there too. <laughs> so, you're not going to escape this if you are following a mystical path. There are other forms of religion and spirituality where this is not considered necessary. But if you want to follow a mystical path, and if you want to know what the mystics know, this is a necessary stage or step in it. We might not say a step in the path, it's the stepping off place. And what has to die is this experience of being an individual separate self. And this is not mysterious. That's the experience you're having right now. This experience that I'm sitting in a room with all these people here in Eugene, and I'm listening to this weirdo talk about these strange things. I'm not sure I'm going to like this talk this morning. And maybe I should have stayed home and gardened or something like that. That experience, that's what we're talking about. That experience. This experience that is with us in more or less intensity. It's interesting because it can vary throughout the day but almost all the time through our lives. That is what has to die. This goes all the way back to shamanic times. And it's interesting that if you read uh, accounts of shamanic initiations, like from Siberia or Africa or Australia, presumably very primordial accounts, I mean, this was going on thousands of years ago, you'll find these horrendous descriptions of what happens. The senior shaman takes the novitiate into the bush or into a cave and, and kills him and sometimes strips off all the flesh and boils his bones and puts them all back together again or rips out his organs and puts in new organs and reconstitutes them and, and then he becomes a shaman. This is how you become a shaman. These vivid graphic descriptions of this death and often dismemberment that takes place. This is why the great uh, scholar of comparative religion, Murcia Iliade, writes, all the ecstatic experiences that determine the future shaman's vocation involve the traditional schema of an initiation ceremony, suffering, death, and resurrection. So this is a very, very ancient motif. And there's a line, a thread that goes all the way back to, as far as we know, the beginnings of religion itself. So the question is then, why is this spiritual death necessary? And all the mystics of all traditions testify that the Gnosis, the Enlightenment, reveals the ultimate nature of reality is non-dual. Non-dual. Now that itself is a paradox because this non-duality includes duality because it's not like there's some reality that's non-dual and then there's another dualistic reality because that would be dualistic. So you see right away now we're involved in a paradox. That part you're never going to figure out. But it is perfectly logical, and you can see right away, as long as there is the experience of duality, of self and world, I and other, subject and object, as long as that experience is in place, you cannot experience non-duality. I mean, everybody get that? In the East, one of their favorite metaphors for this is that the experience of self is a kind of delusion. And it's a delusion that we project onto the reality as it is. And the metaphor is, it's like you're walking along a path 
and you look down and suddenly you see this snake coiled right next to the path and you jump back. And then you take a second look and you see, no, no, wait a minute, it was just a coiled piece of rope. The snake was not actually there, but you experienced the snake, you saw the snake. So this is like waking up. What we're doing is we're mistaking a rope for a snake and then to wake up is to realize, oh, it's not a snake, it's a rope. Now, you cannot see that it is a rope as long as you're seeing snake. You have to stop seeing snake to see that it's a rope. That's a good classic metaphor for this. It's a little crude, however, because the visual image of a snake is different from a rope. And truly speaking, in enlightenment, nothing changes in terms of the naked perception of what is going on. So it's not like suddenly all this disappears and you're looking at me and you see a familiar face and suddenly you see, you know, some totally unfamiliar face that you've never seen before. And you go, oh my gosh, that's what was behind that face. <laughs> Hopefully be prettier and you'd say, oh, wow, that was <laughs> So uh, another metaphor and one that's a little bit more accurate is like waking up not from a dream, but within a dream. Because normally when we are dreaming, we take the worlds and the people and the beings and the animals or whatever's in that dream to be real. We take it to be a world made up of lots of different things. And if we become lucid in the dream and we realize it's a dream, we also realize that, yes, it has this appearance of all these things, but it's really all made of what? Mind, of consciousness. There aren't really individual beings and things out there. So here, nothing actually changes in the visual field, the auditory field, any of our sense fields. What changes is the total context. We suddenly see everything just as it is, but in a totally different context. But again, as long as you believe that the dream is real, you can't see that as a dream. That belief, that experience of the dream as being real has to die. Is everybody following this? So this is why this death is necessary. Here's what the Christian author of The Cloud of Unknowing says. You must realize and experience for yourself that unless you lose self, you will never reach your goal. For wherever you are, in whatever you do, or however you try, that elemental sense of your own blind being will remain between you and your God. And just that, as long as we are experiencing ourselves, we cannot truly experience God. We can experience God in the form of an other. It's sort of a reflected experience of God. We set up a form, and that form is transparent in a certain sense to the transcendent. And as you'll see, that can be extremely useful in the path. But ultimately, God is not another form among forms. God is not another being among all these beings. For a mystic. God is not some super being in the sky, you know, like any being, but just greater and more powerful and infinite and all that. For mystics in these theistic traditions, God is nothing. Literally no thing. Dionysus the Arpegat says, God is everywhere. It's the mountains and the sky, the stars, the trees, a rock, a stone, a cloud, and yet God is nothing. Ibn Arabi, a great Sufi, says, you know, the one thing we do not attribute to God is thingness. 
The point is God is not other. God is not ego us, but God is not other than us either. That's all part of this duality. So, what exactly is this self that has to die? This is interesting because I was in, uh, started my spiritual path in Hollywood in the uh, late 70s, early 80s. And people were all working on dissolving their egos. Like their ego is like some wart, you know, they had on their face. They're trying to get rid of the dissolve their egos away. And a lot of people think or feel or believe or experience themselves as being some sort of entity like that. An ego, a spirit, a soul, something, some kind of entity. And one of the primary mystical practices is to go look and see what is the self. What do we mean when we use the word I or self or me or mine or whatever? What is the reference to that word? And if you start to look, you don't find any entity. What you find is complex layers of activity. An analogy would be uh, like a hurricane. It's a crude analogy, but it kind of works. A hurricane is formed out of spinning clouds and uh, winds and all this stuff going around. If you see these satellite photos, it looks like there's an eye in the center of them. It's quite defined sometimes, you know, quite perfect. But there is no eye there. It's an illusion generated by the activity of the hurricane spinning around. If the hurricane ceases, the eye disappears. I mean, there's nothing there, really. But it is a kind of illusion created by this activity. And it depends on maintaining this activity. So if the activity ceases, then the self ceases. And actually, uh, those of you who know Andrea, she talks about selfing, and it's very good to turn it into a verb. What we are doing is selfing all the time. We are doing this, not consciously doing it, but we are constantly creating and recreating and recreating the self. So let's take a very brief and oversimplified look at how this activity builds up into this illusion of self, and we'll get some idea of how we can interrupt this activity and in doing so bring about this death of this delusion of self, really. And to pick almost arbitrarily a starting point, we might take pure consciousness. Consciousness without an object and without a subject as a ground state. And in fact, actually, we all experience this every night in dreamless sleep. Because we're not lucid, we don't know it, we have no idea of it, it just seems like a big blank out, a big unconsciousness. But truly speaking, there is consciousness. This whole world dies away. There have been dreams, they die away. Everything dies back into this ground state of pure consciousness without a subject and without an object, literally without a subject and without an object. Here's how the great Hindu Upanishads describe it. Here in dreamless sleep, the self becomes transparent like water, the witness, one without a second. This is the ocean of Brahman, O king. This is the supreme path, the highest attainment, the greatest bliss. Brahman is the Hindu name for the ultimate reality, like in the theistic traditions, it's God or Allah or something like that. In dreamless sleep, you have just this pure ground state of consciousness. Non-dual. Nothing's arisen in it yet. Delusion begins, then, with an act of imagination. 
This consciousness, this pure consciousness, is, we can say, infused with power. It's described in various traditions, a like creative power, potentiality for form, whatnot. I think, the, to use an English term, the best would be the power of imagination. The power to imagine. Literally, we have this power in our own, seemingly our own consciousness. We just can sit down and imagine a face. You can close your eyes and imagine a face. There was nothing there, pure consciousness, and a face pops up. And when you stop imagining it, it dissolves away, doesn't it? That's just a reflection of this power. This consciousness then imagines a boundary between I and other, self and world. The first distinction, you know, sometimes you can even experience this waking up from dreamless sleep. If you ever woken up from dreamless sleep and you just know I am, but you don't know who you are, where you are. You don't know your name. You don't know what gender you are. You don't even really know you're a human being. It's just this sense of being an I. This first distinction emerges. Usually, very quickly, this boundary gets drawn around a particular body-mind. Actually, to be more technical, we should say a set of phenomena, which we call body-mind, because if you go look for a body-mind, you won't actually find any entity called body-mind either. You find all sorts of impermanent phenomena, sensations, thoughts, feelings, all this stuff coming and going. But to use a shortcut terminology, this boundary encircles a body-mind, and then there's a sense that that's who I am, an identification with that. And in that process of identifying with a body-mind, we identify with the body-mind's desires and aversions. They become my desires and my aversions. And then, identifying with these desires and aversions, this becomes like the wind in a hurricane that keeps the thing going. The desires and aversions keep the whole thing circulating. This is why Huang Po, a great Zen Buddhist master, writes, Every one of the sentient beings bound to the wheel of alternating life and death is recreated from the karma of his own desires. We can see this because whatever we desire, whether something big or something small, either two things happen. We desire it and we can't get it, so we suffer. Or we desire it and we do get it, and we have a little momentary happiness there. And then either it breaks or dies or dissolves and we suffer, or we get bored with it. And then we need something else. And then we need something else. We never rest here. The desire keeps pushing us, pushing us, pushing us to grasp at what we think we want and push away what we don't want. It becomes the whole story of our lives, isn't it? I mean, it really boils down to something that simple. It gets very complex because we're human beings and our desires get complex and then they get uh, contradictory and uh, all kinds of things go on. But if we want to really boil down this motion, that's what it's all about. And because we are human beings, the human mind then, to use the metaphor, carry it through, creates these clouds of images and thoughts about what's going on. And we form images of a self in here, just like the eye of a hurricane. And then, because we remember the past, and we remember past successes in getting what we desire, or failures in not getting it, and because we can think up scenarios about the future, plan for the future, then we start to create a story, literally a story, 
that takes place in time, you know, with a history and a background. If any of you have ever written characters, fictional characters, it's like creating fictional characters. You give them a history. Where did they come from? Where were they born? What were the formative experiences in their youth? What direction are they going in? And whatnot. We start to develop a character, a central character, of course, the starring character, I, in the story of I. And I have, you know, goals and ambitions and so forth. We see this character in our minds as an image, or we think about it as a thought. And this character starts to seem so real to us. And you can see this if you pay attention to your thoughts. But it seems so real, and then it seems like it really makes decisions. It has free will. That's the last thing in here. And this illusion, you can see this is created in movies. Let's say the alien. As the audience, we've seen the alien go into, I don't know, the, the cabinet where they keep the cleaning stuff on the rocket ship, you know. And then our heroine comes along. She's looking for the alien. And she starts to reach for the door. And you go, oh, no, 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 don't, don't open the door. Ah, and then something distracts her and she walks away. Go, oh. But then she's going back. You're saying in your mind, no, you fool, don't do it. As though she had any choice. It's written in the script, you know. She gets paid to do it. But there's, there's the illusion. And that's what makes this scene exciting. If that notion of reality intruded there, the scene would not be interesting. It's the illusion that there's actually a possibility it could go either way that creates the tension. Now, this story of I, to carry the metaphor further, like a drama, is completely absorbing for us. We are riveted to it. The way you're riveted to, you know, a movie or a television show that you really get into, or a great novel or book. We are riveted. We cannot tear our attention away from this. It is a fiction. Let's notice that. It is a fiction, literally created by the imagination, from that very first distinction all the way through to all the other distinctions and all this stuff, it is a fiction. But it completely captivates our attention. As long as our attention is captivated by this story of I, we cannot realize the reality. We cannot realize the truth. It is though you're watching a TV show and you got so absorbed in it, you completely lost track of where you really were. You're sitting in your living room. And your family is saying to you, hey, uh, Sheila, come on, Sheila, turn that thing off. You've been watching for hours here, and you're just oblivious, oblivious. And finally, somebody wants to come over, and they turn it off. Oh, oh, I'm back in my living room. I mean, most of us never get that far absorbed in a TV show, fortunately. If we do, we, you know, that starts to be considered psychosis. But this is our problem. <laughs> From a mystic's point of view, this is our problem in regular life. We're living in a self-created delusion. Now, the solution is to turn off the television, to stop the activity that's creating this delusion, have it vanish away, and then you'll see where you really are. You'll see you're at home. A lot of us spend most of our lives you know, trying to get home. Some of us... From Vietnam, that becomes a very powerful metaphor, get home. But in one way or another, symbolically, get home. Get someplace where we feel comfortable. Get someplace where we feel accepted. Get someplace where we feel loved. And we feel somewhat like we're in an alien universe. And we always have that feeling. As a little child, I always had a little sense that I was like looking in from the outside, you know. And so the rest of the kids were having a party in there, and I was on the other side of the glass. I mean, I wasn't overly depressed as a child, but there's always that nagging sense of separation, of not being quite at home. Turn off the television, turn off the delusion. You are home. You never left home, really, the truth of the matter is.
But we have a paradox when it gets to how do we get this television to turn off. Here's what another Zen master says. This is Sengsan. When you try to stop activity to achieve passivity, your very effort fills you with activity. So here you are selfing. You're walking around selfing all the time. If you're doing spiritual practices, you may become very aware you're selfing, by the way. That's one of the most important things spiritual practices do. They, they bring the light of awareness onto our everyday activities, and we see ourselves doing it. But how do you stop? How do you stop? And because one of the key features of the selfing is this delusion of will, if you will yourself to stop, that act of willing is an act of selfing. So here you are willing yourself to stop willing. You can't do it. As long as that's there, as long as there's that effort, that intention to cease, that is part of the story now. The story of I is I am going to stop. You get it? This becomes really a big problem as you get towards the end of a spiritual path. It drives people crazy because they get all these contradictory instructions about how to do this and you can't do it and people just start tearing out their hair. Now, it does happen occasionally that life circumstances will bring a person to a place of such despair, hopelessness, pain, and whatnot that they just spontaneously give up. They stop trying. Desires dry up. There's not much to think about. You know, if you don't desire something, there's nothing to think about. 99% of what we think about is based on some desire we have. We're scheming, planning to get something, or maybe it's just a desire to entertain ourselves in the moment. We're bored. You're sitting in that dentist office. You know, I think of a little fantasy. Well, maybe just think about what I'm going to do in Hawaii next winter. Oh, that's going to be fun. But if there's no desires, there's no motive for thought to happen. Thought just sort of dies down. If there's no desires, nothing you want, nothing to get away from, there's no self-will there either. There's nothing to will to get, or there's no reason for doing anything. So occasionally, in some cases, this happens spontaneously. Someone gets to that point in their life where they really just spontaneously surrender and the self dies and they wake up. And I think if you examine the biographies of many mystics who had no formal practice or never walked the path and suddenly woke up, you will find how often this is true. Most of us, however, do not allow ourselves to fall so low. <coughs> That's the truth of the matter. When we start getting there, you know, we call a friend, you want to go to a movie, uh, we start a love affair, we go see a shrink, I mean anything to get us out of this, to get the story going back again, to feel, you know, that we're back in the swing of things. That's why we need a spiritual path and spiritual practices. Spiritual practices are aids to get us, or to bring about, I should say, not get us, to bring about this cessation of this selfing. To bring about an end to desire, to thought, to willing. And spiritual practices are themselves quite paradoxical. Unlike any other worldly sort of practice or pursuit you might undertake. And I've said this very often, and mystics don't usually say this, because again, it doesn't sound so appealing, but worldly practices, worldly pursuits, all at least claim to guarantee you some sort of success. 
If you take this uh, correspondence course, you'll win friends and influence people. <laughs> uh, you'll learn how to sell real estate. You know, I don't know, whatever. You'll improve your economic situation. You'll improve your personality so you can have more dates or whatever. The mystics promise you failure. If you take up this path and these practices, they will all self-destruct. You will guaranteed to fail. You'll try and you'll fail and you'll fail and you'll fail. And that's just the point. You start doing the practices and they undo you. And that's what's supposed to happen. So I say, this is not usually a good talk to give to people being introduced to a spiritual path. But it happens to be the truth. And it is important to know, as we'll see later on, why. Now, let's just talk a little bit about how this works. And uh, first of all, it's very different for different people, and we can only just give a few sort of uh, classic examples here so you can get a, some idea of how spiritual practices bring about a succession of this selfing activity. The first is insight. Certain practices like inquiry and meditation bring about insights. Insights that when we really see what's going on, then we just spontaneously let go of trying to do something. So here's one of the things that all mystical teachings, and especially in the beginning, emphasize is look at the impermanence of the world. Look at the impermanence of your experience. Look at the, not just the philosophical impermanence, we all know everything is impermanent, but the moment-to-moment impermanence of everything that's going on. You know, Jesus said, don't store up a treasure on the earth because the moss will eat it and the rust will corrupt it. That's all a teaching about impermanence. And the Buddha said, see the body as fragile as foam and like a morning dewdrop and so forth. That's all impermanent. Here's what Simone Weil, she was a great Christian mystic of the last century. She writes about impermanence. Everything that appears to be good in this world is finite, limited, and wears out. Men feel that there is mortal danger in facing this truth for any length of time. That is true. Such knowledge strikes more surely than a sword. It inflicts a death more frightening than that of the body. After a time, it kills everything within us that constitutes our ego. In order to bear it, we have to love truth more than life itself. Those who do this turn away from the fleeting things of time with all their souls. So if we really look into impermanence, and if we really see it, I mean, experience it directly, not just as some sort of philosophical thought, you know, our desires, our grasping, all that just starts to weaken. It shows us the futility of all this. We're never going to become happy this way. It's all impermanent. It's all going to fade away. And it's not that all at once everything just stops, but there's no longer this investment in uh, getting what I want will make me happy. So, you know, it's natural desires. You get hungry, you eat, you're thirsty, you drink, got pee-pee, go pee-pee and all that. But there isn't this sense of I in all this, that this is crucial for me, for my happiness, for I want. You start to let that go. It starts to cease. It's not like an act of will. It's coming from our experience of truth. You know, when we start to see the truth of something, that's a pretty persuasive thing. You know, if you're uh, banging your head against the wall and you got a headache and you don't connect the fact that you're banging your head against the wall is making your headache and then somebody points it out to you, oh, you stop banging your head against the wall. That's not a mystery part. Okay, the other thing you can do is you can devote yourself to some form of the divine. 
Now, usually this form of the divine has to appear to you uh, autonomously, spontaneously. Uh, usually it's not something you can think up in your imagination, but you get a sense of, through some form, of the great vastness of this and power of this ocean of consciousness that lies behind this world, that is the ground state of this world, and it's being represented to you in some form. And in that form, you can also get a sense of the of the bliss and the love and the compassion flowing through it that elicits a response of love and compassion. And through that process, you can begin to then surrender your own desires, your own will, what I want, me, mine, and I, to this God or deity or divinity or however you want to think of it, the beloved. Here's what Ibn Arabi, the great Sufi, writes about this. He says, they have made themselves ever ready to receive whatever comes from Allah and have withdrawn completely from their separative selves and their aims. Again, we get a little taste of this in the first flushes of a love affair. You fall in love. This is the most marvelous person you've ever met. And you don't care. Whatever they want to do is fine with you. Do you know what I mean? Whatever they want to do. They want to get pizza? I love pizza. Let's go for pizza. <laughs> you want to go hear Beethoven? I love Beethoven. Whatever you want to do. Heavy rock? It doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't last long, you know. But in the beginning, the point is whatever they do is fine with you. Well, if you have that kind of love and devotion to God, and God is what is behind all this, then all this is the will of God. And that's fine with you. Whatever happens is fine with you. You don't resist it by posing your own will against it. This is, again, Jesus' teaching, you know. Let thy will be done, not my will. We can't just decide it, but what we can do is fall in love. And then we're not deciding it. And you know that, again, from your own experience. When you are in love, you are just crazy. I mean, you're just swept away. I mean, something's got a hold of you. It's not in your control. And that's why love is so transparent to the divine. It has that quality about it. It sweeps us away. So that also starts to bring an end to our separate aims, as he puts it. Our own will, what we want. Then we stop. Everything that's happening is fine. Perhaps the most, and these aren't either or things, by the way, they go in combination, but perhaps the single uh, greatest thing that happens is a kind of judo trick. Because, just because it is impossible for you to bring selfing to an end, the very effort to do so, if you make that effort wholeheartedly, put everything into it, will exhaust itself you will get to the place where you cannot do it anymore. Not because you decided not to do it anymore, but you cannot do it anymore. You cannot think of anything more to do. You have been trying on this spiritual path. You've been trying to stop this selfing, to stop those thoughts, to stop those desires, to stop all this. You've been trying and trying and trying, and you've done all these practices and meditations and, and being a good little boy or girl doing your precepts and everything and that. And you just get to the place where you just give up. Again, it just happens. Here's how Zen master Hakun describes someone who reaches this state. His normal processes of thought, perception, consciousness, and emotion will cease. He will reach the limits of words and reason. He will resemble an utter fool as everything, 
including his erstwhile determination to pursue the way, disappears, and his breath itself hangs almost suspended. This is the occasion when the tortoise shell is about to crack, the phoenix about to break free of its egg. So it's this exhaustion of the effort that has brought the person to this spiritual death. I call this state kenosis. Kenosis comes from a Greek term. It means emptiness, literally. But you will find every tradition has its own name or names for it. Uh, in Buddhism, they sometimes talk about it as imagelessness, the state of imagelessness. In Hinduism, it's nirvokapa samadhi, a space of no thought. Sufis call it fana, passing away of the self. And the Christians call it sometimes a spiritual death or spiritual dark night. As I mentioned earlier, St. John the Cross wrote a classic text about this. But the key thing is this. The winds of desire have to cease blowing. The clouds of thought have to evaporate. That center of self-will has to disappear. That's the hurricane. It just all stops and then poof, the self is just not there. There's nothing there but the space in which all this arose, in which it was all happening, all this activity, and that everything's gone, and there's just the space left. And when that happens, this eye, the eye of the hurricane, it dies. I mean, and the eye here is nice. It's kind of a pun. The eye, the eye of the hurricane, the eye stuff. <laughs> Did it? This is the opportunity. This is the opportunity for enlightenment, for gnosis, realization to occur. Here's what the great Kabbalist scholar Gershom Sholem says about where the Kabbalist path leads. Only when the soul has stripped itself of all limitation and, in mystical language, has descended into the depths of nothing, does it encounter the divine. See, if there's nothing there, there's no story of I going on. There's nothing to distract attention. So attention isn't looking. There's nothing for it to find. It may be looking, but there's nothing for it to find. And when there's nothing for it to find, and there's no desire driving it or will driving it or something to get or whatever, it just starts to collapse back into that ground state again. Here's how Lali Shore, she was a great Hindu mystic. Here's how she describes it. There all words and thoughts become quiet. Neither silence nor yogic postures enable you to enter there. In that state, there is no knowledge, no meditation, no Shiva or Shakti. All that remains is that. O Lali, you are that. Attain that. It's been stripped away. It's as though uh, you had all these jewels spread out on a black velvet cloth. And of course, the jewels are fascinating. Diamonds and sapphires and rubies and all that. And I'm saying, yes, but you know, there's something to be said for the black velvet cloth. But you don't see the black velvet cloth. You don't know what I'm talking about. You say, which one is the black velvet cloth? And I say, no, no, it's not any one of the jewels. It's what they're on. What could that be? I don't see that's not a jewel. What are you talking about? It's nothing. Well, it's not exactly nothing, but it's not one of the jewels. <laughs> now, if I start taking away all the baubles that are attracting your attention, and I, I strip them all the way, and there's nothing left, but the black velvet cloth, there is the opportunity that you'll recognize it. You might not, but at least there's the opportunity. There's nothing to distract you at that point. You getting it? This state itself is not gnosis, is not enlightenment. Very important to understand. 
A lot of people practice and they think they're going to go into the state and then never come out of it. The state is just the opportunity. Here's what another Zen master, Yun Man, says. The time will come when your mind will suddenly come to a stop, like an old rat who finds himself in a cul-de-sac. Then there will be a plunging into the unknown with a cry, ah, this. Now notice two things about this. First of all, this unknown here. Lali Shore says there's no meditation, there's no knowledge, there's no nothing. It's unknowing. We always think we're going to know something. Enlightenment's about knowing the way we've always thought about knowing. It's exactly the opposite. It's when you don't know anything. Not only that, you don't even know you don't know anything. See, because people do this. They get to the point philosophically when they realize, I don't really know anything. Boy, I really realize I don't know anything. How wonderful that is to know that. But that's not <laughs> the unknowing that the mystics are talking about. You're like a fool, as the other Zen master said. Uh, the Sufis say this whole path leads to bewilderment. Total bewilderment. You have no idea what's going on. The other thing is, this state can last for, I mean, just a split second, or it could go on for quite a while. It doesn't matter. The longer it lasts, the deeper it is, the more opportunity you have. And sometimes it can have a very uh, negative feel or quality to it, and sometimes a totally neutral. And even it could be a moment of complete contentment. Because you know what? When there's complete contentment, there's no movement of desire because you don't want anything. There's no movement of thought because there's nothing to scheme about getting. There's no movement of will because you've got everything. Rumi says, the moment you become completely content with God, the doors to paradise fly open. That means to be content with what is right here. Not looking back, not looking forward, not looking behind, to the right, to the left, and so forth. Again, that's not something you can will, but you might actually arrive there someday. More often, it has this other sense of bewilderment, emptiness, and whatnot. All that has to happen is, for one instant, attention has to go to this nothing and look in this nothing, that's the black cloth, and not be distracted. This is why in the Zen tradition, particularly in the Rinzai school, they are the ones who drive you, you know, study these koans and practice and search for yourself night and day and look into it and so forth till you really get the state of exhaustion. And then it can be something as simple as this. One of my favorite Zen stories, this one Zen student, I've forgotten his name, was meditating and working so hard on his koan and meditating and meditating. He wasn't getting anywhere and he finally just got really pissed off and he got up and he left his cushion and he went outside and he was scything the, the grass, you know. And as he's doing that, he hits a little pebble, and the pebble flies up, and they have these little hollow bamboo posts on the fences, and it hits the bamboo posts and goes, pop, and his mind opens. Why? Because in that moment, he couldn't think of anything else to do. He had exhausted everything he could think of, and there was a phenomena, the sound, and the sound came out of this ground state and went, pop, and went back to the ground state. And his attention was on the sound, and the sound disappeared, and he's looking at this moment of emptiness, of nothingness, which is the divine. He's looking right at it. Bingo! His mind opens up. You might be more like me. Most of us are slower, and you know, and you can read about this in my book. I've described going to the state. It took about three or four days to really come on, and where I had just gotten to the end of the path. I couldn't think of any more practice to do. I gave up ever getting enlightened, but I had gone so far, I burned all my bridges, so there was no going back. 
and I'm driving around. I was on this video trip. I'm just driving around just mechanically, just sort of following this itinerary I had, but without any interest whatsoever, what to do. And this state deepened and deepened and deepened. And it wasn't despair. And it wasn't hopelessness in the sense of, oh, poor me, I'm never going to be happy. I never experienced anything like it. It was complete neutrality. It was like I was already dead in some sense, and there was just this, this <laughs> witnessing going on, you know. And that took three or four days. So the timing here doesn't matter. But everybody, as another Zen master said, has to go through the gate of emptiness. Here's Dionysius the Arapagan. He was an early great Christian mystic. He breaks free from what sees and is seen, and he plunges into the truly mysterious darkness of unknowing, here renouncing all that the mind may conceive, wrapped entirely in the intelligible and the invisible. He belongs completely to him who is beyond everything. Here, being neither oneself nor someone else, one is supremely united by a completely unknowing inactivity of all knowledge and knows beyond the mind by knowing nothing. That's a wonderful, good, full, completely paradoxical description. No activity, no knowing. Everything has come to a halt. Everything has come to an end. And you're neither yourself nor are you someone else. It just vanishes. That just vanishes. My favorite one actually is very short is Rumi. He says, footprints come to the ocean shore, therein no trace remains. So I just want to say one last thing about this teaching, because all teachings have a purpose in mystical paths and traditions. We don't talk about philosophy for just the sake of talking about philosophy. So anything you read, any teaching, even though it may sound very philosophical, it actually has a purpose. It's some sort of instruction in some way. And in a certain sense, I feel like I'm a magician giving away his tricks, you know, that it'd be in a way better for everybody to just walk the path and didn't know that you couldn't do this up front and then discovered this judo trick on your own. But that cat is out of the bag anyway. I mean, you go in there and we've just got books and books to talk about it. So uh, I'm not the first one who gave away the trick. And since it's out of the bag, uh, no point in trying to conceal it anymore. But if you use this teaching intelligently, and this is really the purpose of giving it, I mean, once the cat's out of the bag, if you start to feel on a spiritual path that you're not getting anywhere, that you'll never succeed and all that, do not give up prematurely. Do not give up prematurely. This is a great mistake people make. Keep going. Keep going. That is actually a good sign. A good sign. Whatever you're doing, if your practice is forceful, energetic practice, keep going with that. If your practice is noticing, just noticing when I'm grasping and desiring and what I'm grasping at is all impermanent. And so, you know, there are very subtle levels of grasping. As we go on this path, we start noticing levels of grasping we never noticed before. Down to the grasping that takes place in a moment of meditation where you're sitting there and you're basically calm, everything's basically fine, and you think, well, gee, maybe this is kenosis here. When is enlightenment going to happen? Well, there's grasping. When is enlightenment going to happen? That's it right there, you see. We don't notice that even. Just a passing thought, but it distracts our attention from the moment. It puts our attention to the next moment coming. Oh, maybe in the next moment I'll get enlightened. That's how subtle the movement of this attention is and how subtle but powerful these distractions work. So, in that process, if you just continue with the practice, 
Notice the whole thing about getting discouraged with a path and, oh, I can never do this and I'll never do that. Oh, isn't this selfing going on here? Isn't this all about I, me, mine? I mean, you know, as I've said many times, all the ego cares about is starring in the movie. It would like to be the successful, triumphant hero or heroine, but if it has to settle for the role of the failure, the washout, it'll settle for that as long as it gets to star. What I'm saying is you can notice this. Continue with the practice. Don't get prematurely discouraged. So if you remember that part of this teaching, then whatever is happening, then maybe it will serve you. I hope it does. If you have any questions, comments. Yes. Just add something to what you're saying. Uh, in reading your book, one thing that I noticed after Vietnam was that when I came back, I wasn't the same person. I had died to certain things. It took me a number of years to realize that. Uh, life to me is spiritual already. It's just when you put your foot on the path, you in a sense acknowledge a certain part of your existence that you've been a space for Facing death, physical death, can be an extremely powerful spiritual experience, whether you're on a path or not. And in fact, it can be so powerful, it itself can just precipitate you right to enlightenment. Uh, Ramana Maharshi, a great Hindu saint of the last century, as a young teenager, did just that. He had no interest in spirituality, no interest in sports and things like that. He came home one day, and he suddenly just knew he was going to die. He didn't have any physical symptoms or anything, but I just it's, it's actually not quite clear whether it was just realizing, as we all do at some point, why this flesh is mortal, or he thought he was going to die right then. But in any case, he was overwhelmed by this fear of death. But instead of running out and calling his friends and going to play soccer or do something, he said, well, let me look into this and see what this is really about. And so he lay down on the floor and he says, again, this wasn't a choice. He says, the fear of death drove my mind inwards. And in his mind, he saw his body dying, being carried to the funeral pyre, burned up, and nothing's left. And that's when he realized what he called the spirit that he was, because there was nothing. It's like taking away all the baubles off the black velvet. So that kind of confrontation with something that powerful itself can be that. And I think that, I mean, if this is true of you, it's certainly true of me, a lot of vets I talk to, the truth is we miss it. And we miss it because we felt we were close to something real. And we come back and there's so much that is baloney. Do you know what I mean? That there's an aspect of that we miss. It's true. We were close to something real. Very, very. So we can make use of our, our worldly circumstances. Yes. So once you had your awakening, can you talk a little bit about the process that brought you here? You mean here, right here to this place? <laughs> yeah. Just yeah. Not, not the specific, you know, the process that moved you anywhere. Well, I can talk a little bit about it, though it's very difficult because I still have to use I unless I'm going to become very artificial in talking the language. But initially, I had absolutely no idea of being a teacher or anything like that. First of all, there was just nothing to teach. I mean, just didn't seem to be anything you could possibly teach. And second of all, nothing seemed to be wrong with anything, anywhere. So, you know. We were, we were lost. What? I was lost, yes. <laughs> and then uh, I got this impulse. This is about four or five, no, maybe, I don't know, maybe in a week or two afterwards. I've forgotten now. But I'm driving along. I'm still on this trip. I got this overwhelming impulse to stop and write 
down what had happened. And it was not something I chose to do. So I pulled into the motel. I spent three days there and I wrote what turned out to be basically the last chapter or the second to last chapter of my book. But I just wrote down what happened in that motel room. And then I went on. And then this impulse came that, you know, you really have to expand this. You have to make a testimony. You have to bear witness. If nobody understands it or gets it or whatever, but you have to leave some record in the world and then you can go and live in the mountains and bliss the rest of your life, you see. So that was my idea that I would settle down, write this book, and then I would be free. I'd done my duty, my karmic duty, if you like to put it that way. Well, things actually didn't turn out that way. I got a nice cabin in the mountains to write the book, but I also happened to be in a place where a mystical philosopher, Dr. Wolf, and lots of people came, and then they started asking me questions, and then I couldn't say no, and then eventually some of those people asked me to come up here. Is Maggie around here? Yeah. Okay. Well, you know Maggie or Andrea. She was one of that crowd. You can blame it all on them. What's happened since? They're the ones. Who are, and I had no reason not to come, so I did come. So here I am. That's in a nutshell what happened. But the, but it's true. The interesting thing about this is I never chose to do any of this. I really didn't. In fact, in some sense, you could say, I don't take me really seriously here, but it would be more true to say I got cheated out of spending the rest of my life in, in the mountains there, working a little hardware store, which is what I wanted to do. <laughs> yes, in the back. I guess my question is just when you have an awakening, is it something that then you have forever, or is it something you have to reattain again each time? Very good question. I've done a, a number of talks on that. Not that I won't answer your question, but if you want more elaboration, uh, one is called Varieties of Mystical Experience, and the other is called Are There Levels of Enlightenment? So if you want to check that out. But to give you a shorthand answer, depends on what you mean by awakening here. And I make a distinction between a full Gnostic awakening and what I call a Gnostic flash, or maybe even a Gnostic episode. They both begin the same way, and then a misperception happens in a Gnostic flash that starts the whole self and going again after a Gnostic flash. And if that doesn't happen, then it just stays and it's just a Gnostic awakening. <coughs> stays is the wrong word here, though, because we're not talking about a state. We're not talking about anything. We're talking about a kind of knowing. And so let me give you an example that Ramana Maharshi used about what this knowing is. For instance, do you know that you are not a goat? That's not a trick question. Do you know you're not a goat? Well, I'm a Capricorn. Got you. We could try another one. Right. Are you a squirrel? I'm not up on astrology, but I don't think there's squirrels up there, are there? Okay. In the Chinese, there might be. You're not a squirrel. You know you're not a squirrel, right? Is that true? Now, do you go around thinking about it all the time? No. It never occurs to you that you're not a squirrel unless I ask the question. That sounds like a weird question, right? But you always know you're not a squirrel, right? 
always know you're not a squirrel. But it's not like you're in some state of knowing you're not a squirrel. You don't go around and say, I'm not a squirrel. Thank God I'm not a squirrel. <laughs> right? Is that true? Okay. So the parallel here is what enlightenment is, or what it does, is shows you that you aren't there. You aren't there. Aren't, so, are not there. Are not. Right. N-O-T, not there. <laughs> so then you see that there is no self there. That eye of a hurricane is not anything. It was just space. Do you see what I mean? Now, you walk around, you don't keep thinking, well, I'm not here, I'm not here, I'm not here. You're just not here. Now, if somebody says, are you here? Well, you would answer, no, well, of course I'm not here. And that's what I did, by the way, at first, before I, when I was still lost, as someone said, and when I still didn't say anything wrong with anything in the world, you know, I would engage with people and talk to them. And then I would say things, and it would be mystifying to the people I'm talking with, or worse, they would be talking about some suffering they're having, and I'd burst out laughing. <laughs> because it was part of the drama, you know, and it was sometimes it was comics, sometimes sad, but you know, if you don't go to see any comedies, a lot of comedy is suffering, and we're all laughing our heads off. And then I realized, wait a minute, wait a minute, whoa, 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 something's wrong here. These people don't. It's not obvious to them that there is no self. So then I started becoming a better actor, <laughs> hopefully. So you see, this is the point. You're not attaining anything. You're just simply seeing that something you thought was true is not true. And then you can't lose that, really. What can happen is you can have a genuine experience of that ground state. Everything collapses. Here's the ground state. This is divinity. No question about it. This is reality. We don't get any realer than this. Do you see what I mean? Now, two things can happen. One is it's almost always extremely blissful. And subtle attachment forms to that bliss, an identification. So now I am this bliss. I'm talking about a manifest bliss, you know. And then that bliss is going to pass eventually because it's an emotion, a feeling. And then if you identify with it, as it passes, you say, oh my gosh, I'm losing my enlightenment. You've missed what the enlightenment was. The enlightenment was not the bliss. The enlightenment was simply the realization that there's no self there. So that can cause people problems because then they start trying to get their enlightenment back. Well, then now we're back to a story of an eye trying to da-da-da-da-da-da-da. The other major problem, especially, I think, for people who had an ascetic path and where asceticism has been emphasized is they come to think of certain things, sexual desire, anger, things like that as being unspiritual. So here you are, and maybe for at least weeks and months and whatever, none of those things are rising because all you're experiencing is bliss, but the bliss starts to fade away. And then anger arises or fear or sexual desire. <laughs> and there's, uh-oh, what's happening? I'm losing my enlightenment. Instead of looking directly at that and seeing that that too is divine, that everything arising out of this ground state is an expression of that state. And this is the ultimate meaning of non-duality. It's not that there's the state and these forms. It's just when there are no forms, it's easy to see the formless ground state. When forms start up again, it's all a play of divinity. So if you can look at whatever is happening right there as it's happening and see the truth of it, then no more deception will occur. In the Tibetan tradition, they have a whole uh, series of practices, Dzogchen practices, that are designed precisely for people who have, as they say, been introduced to their true nature, have had a Gnostic flash, and now these are practices to make sure you don't, the selfing doesn't start up again. 
Yes, Karen. Well, so you're saying that a Gnostic Flash, our episode, could actually, if you succeed in extending it, could become full enlightenment. But I am confused now because I thought that, like, enlightenment was just that's it. You know, like you said, okay, I'm never going to think I'm in the world again. I mean, there's, it's not possible. So how could this person think, oh, I'm losing it, you know, then they wouldn't really be enlightened. Well, this is, this is a semantic question. Depends on what you mean. And, you know, frankly, see, that's what I always said. Anything short of just, well, you're not a squirrel, and that's it, was not in life. But there are two things. First of all, I did meet people who I know they had a genuine realization of that ground state. So what should we call that? So I got to call it something. So I say it's Gnostic Flash. It's different from other sorts of spiritual experiences that are just bliss experiences, just unity experiences, something else. So we want to distinguish that. Mm-hmm. So that's just a reality. It happens to people. Do you know what I mean? And then if you read through various traditions, like the Tibetans, they've studied very closely and they know how this happens. Desire arises and then that fools you and so forth and so on. So we're just describing here what in fact does happen to people and various ways to look at what does happen. So I think that you'd have to say that there are really two shoes that drop in enlightenment. The first is the ground state. Everything for a moment is gone and there's the ground state and that is it. And the next crucial thing is when form, any kind of form, starts to arise again, it's all recognized as being nothing but an expression of that ground state, regardless of what kind of form it is. You see what I mean? Yeah. Can you speak a little bit more about um, what you know about this uh, space that isn't the eye? Well, every night you experience it dreamlessly. And... It doesn't have to be that radical. Only for dumb people like me does it have to be that radical, as I said. It can be the space that is left when something disappears. There was a great rabbi, Moses de Leon, I think, <coughs> Kabbalist rabbi, 14th century Spain, who said, in the transformation of every phenomena or moment of experience, the nothingness of God is revealed. And what he means is, this is like the Zen story I told, there's a sound, a word, a thought, it doesn't matter. It's there and it's not there. The Tao Te Ching talks about all the myriad creatures arise from the Tao and return to their roots. That's what it means. Everything is returning to its roots. Every sensation, everything is arising and returning to its roots. So everything is pointing you to the divine ground in every moment. So in that moment of it's not being there, that is that moment of nothingness. That nothingness is actually as great as the nothingness when there is absolutely nothing there. If that makes any sense. I mean, nothingness is indistinguishable from nothingness. You see what I mean? So you could have, I don't know, these are crude analogies, but you could have just a little tear in the fabric and you see through and there's nothing behind it. Or you could get rid of the whole fabric. You're seeing the same nothing that's behind it. You see what I'm talking about? So I've forgotten what your question was. Well, <laughs> the, um, what, what I'm saying is that you use the word nothing, and uh, you know that's more typically Zen or something, the, the net negating. And then in, in uh, India, they tend to use the words of the self, and it has these qualities of bliss and love. And so you've talked a lot about, very effectively, of the sort of the negating, but can you talk about some of the positive qualities? Of well, okay, yeah. but here's the problem. Uh, the Buddhists, the reason they hate 
positive words because the mind grabs onto them, turns them into a thing. And in the Hindu tradition, yes, there's a lot of talk about Sat, Chit, and all that. But there's also Neti, Neti. Have you heard of that? Not this, not that. And if you go to describe the attributes of Brahman, well, it's not this, not that. It has no qualities. It's all negation, negation, negation. The same thing is true of all the theistic traditions. They have lots of positive things to attract you, but when it comes down to it, God is not this and not that and so forth. But the positive things arrive from the absence of something. So let me just give you a crude example again. You're in a movie. Uh, I don't know. What's your favorite movie? Did you like Star Wars? Yes. Everybody likes Star Wars. The first Star Wars. Okay. You're in that movie, right? And you don't know you're in a movie. You take him to be real. Well, the very first scene, there's this battle between these ships and people being killed right and left. It's pretty gruesome. Then this princess is kidnapped. Uh, I don't know, whole star things blow up. Then you're in this <laughs> bar with these freaky weirdo, I mean, it's terrifying. And, you know, then you're in this place where the, I, the, the walls are crashing. Yeah, I don't, you don't remember all the scenes. Now, if you don't know you're in a movie and you actually think that you are there, this is not fun. No, it's not fun. It's one thing after another, a problem that you have to deal with, get out of, survive, da-da-da-da-da. So what happens is when the delusion that this is real drops away, it's fun. It's not one thing that's fun that was different than before. It's all fun. And this is very interesting. It goes back to we're talking about emotions. Because when you're scared, that's fun. Right? When you're uh, touched, that's fine. When it's humorous, that's fine. When you're angry in the movie, that's fine. It's all fine. When you're in love with the princess, that's fine. So, Dr. Wolf said the best. Enlightenment does not involve a change in the content of consciousness. Nothing whatsoever has to change. It's just the context of it all. The whole thing changes. The whole thing. And that is, uh, these are hard things to talk about. That is the innate bliss. Talk about sat, shit, ananda. This bliss is not the bliss you experience as a feeling, an emotion. In fact, in Hinduism, that bliss is the last covering. That's your last obstacle. If you're attached to that, that's what you have to overcome. Innate bliss is built into the ground of all this. It's the fact that it's a wonderful movie. I don't know how else to put it. I'll give you one other crude analogy. Some of you have heard this before. When I was living in Lone Pine, which is on the high desert, I was living in this little town, and the towns are far and few between, spread out, you know, and at night, these fantastic skies with just blaze of stars, and I mean, awesome, just, you know. And it was 4th of July, and some people got together, and they said, we'll do some fireworks. We'll go between these two towns. I mean, we'll really be out on the desert. Won't that be spectacular? No lights from the cities. You know, it's just really going to be intense. We all got in our cars. We drove out to the desert, pulled over, and the people got out there, and they started lighting off these fireworks. Do you know what? The fireworks like these little piddly things going <laughs> off. We were just lost in the sky. And the fireworks, you know. I mean, they weren't bad, but... Now, this is manifest bliss and innate bliss. The innate bliss is just always there when you're on the desert at night. The manifest bliss is a little fireworks. Oh, that's fine, but... You don't have to do anything to create the innate bliss. I mean, it's just there. Do you know what I mean? It's not a big deal in a certain sense. Anybody who lives on the desert, I mean, it's awesome and all that, but it's not something special, which is why the Zen people say, you know, nothing special. Yes. 
We've been talking about this instantaneous sort of thing. What about the idea of a gradual awakening? Let me say quickly. I have to answer these quickly, otherwise each one is a whole talk in itself. But the path itself has a gradual aspect. We gradually let go of our attachments. We gradually stop selfing as much as we were at one time. And you can notice and see a progress in that, and you can see a freedom in that, and a happiness in that, and a contentment in that. So all along in the path, it's not like everything or nothing in that sense. In a relative sense, there's a lot to experience, a lot of fruits to be gotten, beauty, all sorts of experiences, wonderful stuff. But when you get to the line between delusion and reality, it is sudden. It is always sudden, and I can tell you quickly why. Time is part of the delusion that is seen through. There is no such thing as time. Time is another creation of the imagination. So this ground state, the reality is timeless. Now, you cannot get from time to timelessness through time. And anything gradual is happening through time. You see what I mean? So it takes what we would say today, maybe a quantum leap. A quantum leap is a photon. It goes from one place to another. It does not go through time. It does not go through space. It's here, and then it's here. That's the definition. So that's the problem. All gradual things are in time. How do you get out of time? There's no process to get out of time. The process itself has to stop. Then you are out of time. You never were in time. <laughs> Very quickly, we gotta. Yeah. Uh, you you were talking about uh, falling in love with God, and and you and then you talked about Thy will be done, and you said, well, you can't choose Thy will be done. Like you can't just will that. Now I'm gonna. But but you can fall in love, and it seems to me that you can. That's what you said. Oh, ah, okay, I'm sorry. It's possible to fall in love, but you can't decide to fall in love. Right. Now, a lot of this is a kind of a dance. So it's not that we're totally powerless. And let's take this idea of falling in love. Let's say you're a human being and you're lonely and you want a partner, right? Now, if you sit around your living room all day and mope around, chances are very slim you're going to find somebody. Maybe you're male person, you know, will come to the door with a special delivery and there'll be instant love or something. But it's... So, if you want to fall in love, then you could start going places where you might find like-minded person that you could fall in love with, you know? So, whatever you like to do. If you're a musician, you might hang out at record stores and CD stores and stuff like that. Uh, if you're an intellectual, you might go to the library or, you know, whatever. So, you start getting out there, making yourself available. You still can't choose to fall in love. But now at least you're meeting more and more people and you're increasing the odds. And then one day, there she is. And you know, you have no choice about it. And then sometimes, guess what? You are in love and you don't want to be in love and you have no choice about that either, do you? But we can put ourselves in the position more and more for this to happen. So there is a kind of dance we can do uh, it's, it's like a meeting of wills, and in fact, there's only one will. So it seems like there are two wills going on. Just like if you didn't know that the person in the mirror was you, then you might say, ooh, I turn, ooh look at that. Every time I look at the person in the mirror, they look at me, right? It's not two things going on, really. Man. So in that certain sense, the more you turn to God, the more God will turn to you. But, is that making sense? All right. Uh, I want to ask, can we have awakening and awakening? Not only can you, I'll tell you this, 
Are you aware? Yes. Okay. Is everybody in this room aware? Are you conscious right now? Are you conscious? Yes. Right? Okay. Is there anybody who's unconscious? Raise your hand. <laughs> what is the fundamental quality of consciousness, of awareness? That fundamental quality is a kind of knowing. Not a knowing of something, not a knowing of thought, but a knowing that something is here. I mean, there's a direct perception of something. You don't know what it is. You might be dreaming. It might be all illusion. I might be a magician creating it all. You might be a psychotic. But something is here. I cannot convince you that nothing is here. Now, that knowing is gnosis. That is enlightenment. Yes. See, it's so simple, we don't recognize it. If you weren't enlightened, nothing would be here. So the answer is not only is it possible, but in a certain sense you already are. You just have to realize it. <laughs> and I can go back to my hardware store. <laughs> I don't want to leave you that impression. Great things have happened. The best thing was meeting Jennifer. <laughs> I wouldn't go back to the hardware store unless she wanted to go back to the hardware store. I don't think she does either. (laughs) All right. Let's bring the formal part of the morning to a close. Uh, You're welcome to stay. Have some goodies in there. Check out the library. Last chance before we close for the break. And until we see you again, peace to you all.